Today's episode is brought to you by the Consultancy Growth Network. As you'll know, I'm a big believer in learning from people who've achieved the things that you want to. It's why I run this podcast, to share the stories of consulting leaders and how they've got to where they are today. So when I started talking to Mark Janssen and the team at Consultancy Growth Network, it was clear there was an obvious fit between Climate Consulting and their mission and what they are building with their network. But you're probably asking, what is the Consultancy Growth Network? The Consultancy Growth Network is the leading community of boutique consulting leaders. It brings together seasoned consulting growth experts who successfully scaled their own boutiques, with rapidly growing consulting founders looking to emulate their success. Now, you might be thinking, who are these growth experts? What do they actually know about consulting? And this is one of the most exciting things that personally I find about the network. The team at the Consultancy Growth Network have searched far and wide for some of the best boutique consulting leaders to help their members on their journeys, some of which I have previously interviewed for this podcast, such as Don Morehouse and Augusto Negrillo. But it's not just the insights from these people that you will benefit from. By joining, you get access to their jam-packed calendar of regular in-person and online events, their comprehensive growth hub of resources, and their active Slack community. Through all of these channels, you can learn, solve challenges, and achieve the goals you want for your firm. And now if that wasn't enough reason to sign up, the Consultancy Growth Network is giving all listeners to this podcast a special sign-up offer. If you join for 12 months, you join for that next year, you will get your 13th month for free, giving you that extra month to continue to build on everything you're learning and continue to benefit from the network. To sign up, just visit consultancygrowthnetwork.com or contact their partnerships director, Luke, at luke at consultancygrowthnetwork.com. And when you're talking about joining, mention Create Engage or Climbing Consulting, and you will get that special sign-up offer. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. Now, as you will have heard from the start of this episode, and I suspect you may have heard a few times over the previous months if you're a regular listener, we have joined forces with the Consultancy Growth Network and become one of their partners. As you may know from listening to the show, the whole reason I launched Climate Consulting was to help consultancy owners and people on their consultant career to grow, develop, and achieve success, whatever success means to you. And it was this mission that got us talking to Mark and the team at TCGN. And having seen firsthand the fantastic network that they've built, I knew that it would be a great partnership, a great fit, and it has been fantastic working with them so far. For this episode, I wanted to invite Mark on, a consulting entrepreneur and expert in his own right, and having built a fantastic network of consultancies, partners, and advisors, I have heard firsthand his advice and seen the impact that that advice has had. And so I wanted to share that with you and invite him on to talk about all of those challenges that come up time and time again in the Consultancy Growth Network and in the firms that he works with and advises. So for this one, we take a deep dive into exactly that as Mark shares his playbook on how you can scale your consultancy and how you can increase profitability. Ultimately, the two biggest factors for building any successful consulting firm. In this one, we go all the way through everything that you need to know and dig into these challenges to give you tons of practical advice that you can apply to help make 2024 the year that you want it to be for your firm. To give you a taster of what you're about to hear, we talk about 
the common challenges that Mark sees time and again for consultancies and how you can preempt and overcome them. We talk about proposition and why defining and refining your value proposition could be the most important thing you do to help your consultancy grow. And finally, we talk about bottom line. And Mark explains how he was able to turn £70,000 profit one year into over 700000 the next, and the lessons that you can apply so that your firm can do the same. If you know Mark or you're familiar with TCGN, you know just how much value you're going to get from this one. If you don't, I hope this gives you a taste of what is about to come, and I really do hope that you enjoy today's conversation. So please have your notebook to hand, get ready to get some fantastic gems that will help your consultancy, and please enjoy my conversation with Mark Janssen. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, really looking forward to this. Obviously, we've got to know each other very well over the last year with Create Engage becoming part of the Consultancy Growth Network. People listening to this right now have probably heard the ad for the Consultancy Growth Network right at the start. So hopefully they know who you are. But for those who maybe don't, or for those naughty people who skip past the ad, could you give a bit of background on your career and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So um, I trained originally with Pricewaterhouse as a chartered accountant left fairly promptly after qualifying and joined, you know, what was a, an equally prestigious brand, I thought, uh, PepsiCo, um, only to find that I was going to be working in KFC Kentucky Fried Chicken and joined the head office there as a sort of like an operational support guy. So I got out of accountancy straight away and then went down to run a region of restaurants for KFC, which was uh, a baptism of fire. And then, you know, the obvious jump to join my sister who decided to set up a consulting business called Blue Sky. Uh, she was about nine months a year in and I joined Blue Sky. I was there 17 years. Uh, we sold Blue Sky to Capita back in 2013, almost 10 years ago. And following that, I went on to provide sort of, I, I guess, be a freelance advisor really to other consulting businesses, other consultancy owners. And uh, more recently, uh, what, three, four years ago now, I started the Consultancy Growth Network. Well, a very concise overview. I did not know about KFCs. That did you was, not? I did not. That was the best bit. I, I can imagine. I, I don't usually, well, I always like things I didn't know about. What was the, the best part of running KFC restaurants? That feels like quite a shift from being an accountant at PwC. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, obviously being able to eat the food. I, I was very proud of an office that I had above a restaurant, which I... And I actually ate the food at least two, if not three times a week, can you believe? But it was, you know, an opportunity to lead a team of 200 people across 13 restaurants, 9 million revenue, and uh, have my own little business unit because we were down in the West Country. I, I think when I went down there the first time to take over as the sort of district or regional manager, uh, my boss didn't turn up in the region for three months. And so I was just left to my own devices. I was reading The One Minute Manager, I remember, which was fantastic. I recommend it to those of you who haven't read it. And yeah, that was my first leadership role, really. Maybe we start with, actually, obviously, people have heard about what the Consultancy Growth Network is from the ads at the start of this, and members will know it. But could you start with actually what the network is and maybe lead into why you decided to, having built and sold your own business, having a very comfortable advisory career, why you decided it's time to jump into something new? Yeah, sure. So it's really simple. It's a community specifically for leaders of consulting firms, essentially. 
So uh, if you have an ambition to grow your consulting firm and you probably haven't done it before, then what a great opportunity to connect with other people who are on that journey as well, but also to get access to experts that have traveled that path, been there, bought the t-shirt. So we have a team of what we call our, our growth experts. So there's eight of us that have all built and sold consulting firm between 10 and 30 million. And the thinking from those people sort of feeds the, the agenda, if you like, for the network. And we run about 30 events a year, four big face-to-face events, and then a whole range of online forums and, and learning opportunities to try and bring those teams on and help them achieve their ambitions. So that's really what... Uh, the, the goal, I guess, the, the sort of strap line is we're looking to be a one-stop shop for consultancy leaders to fulfill their ambitions. That's really what it's about. And the second half, and, and maybe the obvious question, the why, I mean, to your point, when you describe it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm conscious you probably started that in a world where networks were a thing, you know, I know you know Daniel Priestley and I, he's got his network. There's lots of other business networks. Why did you decide to create one specifically for consulting when, you know, there's plenty of, I guess, SME networks already in existence? Yeah. I, I do think building a consulting business is really challenging. I also think it's quite unique. And I, I went myself to other networks and you end up sitting next to someone who's maybe running a restaurant chain or a logistics business. And, and frankly, the, just, the similarities just aren't there and they're not facing the similar challenges. Broadly, you know, you can talk about maybe leadership and people stuff, but B2B marketing, very different, you know, driving profitability, very different. So I was doing the advisory sort of role and essentially I was repeating myself because surprise, surprise, people were experiencing similar challenges, right? So within the consulting world, there are some core challenges that we all need to overcome. And there was nothing really there. So it was a gap. And well, I'll tell the story maybe further on in terms of how I came up with the idea, but I think the why for me is, is really clear. It's a tough gig and why make it up as you go along? When you put it like that, Mark, it makes a lot of sense. And and to your point, I think the how is is interesting, but I do want to start with what you touched on there, those challenges. And you mentioned you're seeing time and again with your advisory clients, it's why you start the network. What are those big challenges that you see consulting boutique founders, owners, partners face? And then I think we can start to dive into and dissect each one of those. So contextually, one of the kind of, particularly the early days, one of the big challenges that People tend to start a consulting business based on a set of competencies or skills or experience that they have. And they say, right, okay, I want to take those skills out to the market and, and offer those skills out. As opposed to, you know, a classic entrepreneur would be looking at the market going, what's the gap that I'm trying to fill and what service or product am I going to build to close that gap? And what typically happens is consulting entrepreneurs will then take their skills out to market, they'll do a good job, they're smart people, the client will like them, and then they'll give them other jobs to do. And before you know it, they're doing a, a really wide range of different services. Uh, I mean, I know for, for us at Blue Sky, I think two, three years in, we had something like 26 service lines of things that we were, you know, we would put on the back of our brochure, a physical hard copy brochure in those days, listing out all these things that we could do for you. And that just sets people off on the wrong path, frankly. And so the big challenge that people face in the early days is how do they articulate their value proposition and how do they articulate how and why people should buy from them and how they're different to other people in the market. So that, that would be one major challenge. Many other challenges around the fact that, you know, people are your product, people are generally a bit unreliable, they're very variable, they're not consistent. And so building and scaling a business that's so dependent on people is really challenging. 
and one you know that is also tends to be quite dependent on the owner so you know in most businesses you take a manufacturing business you wouldn't expect to see the ceo in the factory actually being involved in the manufacturing process but of course in the consulting business the ceo is often involved in developing the intellectual property or having a sales conversation or overseeing a client the danger is they're very involved in all of that so it's again different challenge different business type yeah I mean, that value proposition piece, I find fascinating, partly because it's what we help clients with at Create Engage, but also because to your point, so often it's the thing that stops people being able to scale their consultancy. You touched on when you start a consultancy. Is that unique to people who've just started out or is, is that something you see across the spectrum? And if it is across the spectrum, how does that differ? Surprisingly, it can stay with a consulting firm for quite a long time. And I, I've seen businesses that are turning over 10, even 15 million and they're struggling to articulate what their value proposition is. And as a result, they struggle, and it was difficult working with Unic because then they don't know how to go to market, right? Because if they can't articulate it, you've got nothing to work with. And again, because people have networks and they will grow their business through those networks, working in potentially different industry sectors, doing different types of projects, your world's your oyster in terms of, you know, you, you could pick anything in terms of what they could go out to market with. So yeah, it's a problem and it's even if you articulate and you sort it out in year three or year five it can still come back to bite you in year eight or year 10 because things change and you build more services and before you know it you find yourself your team are confused again and and you haven't got that clarity you led into it there but it it raises that question of why is it a problem so you mentioned you know blue sky you had these 26 service lines if i was listening i might think well mike that's great because i've got 26 different products you know to your manufacturing Pepsi had all of these different brands. They're making more money. Why doesn't that work for consultancies? So lots of reasons. And to give a few, you want to be able to build real capability in your business. And you can't, as a small business with, say, 30, 40 people, you can't build capability across 26 service lines. You can't be the best in the world at 26. You, you know, you, you're going to struggle to be the best in the world at one. So I think the key thing is once you've You've gone beyond your network and you want to scale your business and you need to go out to market and actually, you know, make a song and dance about what it is you've got to offer and how different you are and the value you bring. It needs to be focused. It needs to be a clear message and it needs to deliver compelling value to the prospect. And so that demands, in my view, the need to focus in on a fewer propositions, ideally in fewer sectors targeting fewer prospects with similar challenges. That problem, the way you've described it there, if I was listening to this and I was five to 10 people, you know, smaller booty, I would think, although I know it's not always true, that's quite easy to solve. So say, you know, take your example, if I've come out of, I don't know, a water company and I'm a project manager, I know from firms we've spoken to, from firms I've seen in the market, when you get to that 10 to 15 million, you might have multiple partners or multiple different service lines. And actually... Does that make it harder to coalesce? And how have you seen people being able to overcome that issue of, well, if we've got 10 partners each selling 10 things, how do we get them to agree that we're only going to sell three things? Yeah, I mean, I think context really matters here. So there's not a, a fixed answer. Although I would point people towards, there's a great book by, what was his name? Colin Price, ex McKinsey partner, wrote a book called Accelerate Performance, Accelerating Performance, something like that. Beyond Performance was the first one and then Accelerate Performance was the second one. And there's a great clip on YouTube. He, he, he did a, a session on the highest performing organizations 
and he looked at the number of products and services those high-performing organizations had. And I won't give you the answers on, on here, but go and check it out on the, on the YouTube clip. But I can tell you now that the successful businesses that were consistently growing, consistently profitable, had massively fewer products and services than those that were not performing as well. So it works at big corporate level as much as it works for me at, at, at small and medium-sized consulting firms. And for people who want to do this, how do you recommend people do that? Is it just get all the partners in a room and fight it out until you only have three? Is it look at profitability? Is it look at revenue? Kind of how have you seen that work? And maybe I don't know how you mentioned with Blue Sky, you had 26. I mean, maybe that's a good example. Kind of how did you smash that down to however many you did? Yeah, we, we took that down to four. So in terms of the how, I'd say the first step is to establish the criteria that you're going to use to make that decision. And I think it's important that, you know, so for example, you know, is there strong market demand for that particular service line? Have you got a track record and a good case history of being able to demonstrate value in that space? Do you have the capability to scale it? Uh, can you train people to do it? But also, are you passionate about it? Is it something you're interested in? And do you want to do it? So, and you may, you may take a risk on a few service lines, you know, that meet some of those criteria and maybe not some of the others. So I think, the, the, the way I've done it with clients is we establish our criteria, we weight those criteria, and then we score the different service lines, the different sectors. And as a result, we, we then test, you know, um, we make a decision and go, okay, we think these three are the primary ones that we're going to go after. And then let's test it. So let's come up with some compelling propositions, go to market and see how we do. Because it's not easy going to market with multiple propositions and multiple sector targets, you know, simultaneously. You're probably going to phase that anyway. I guess your last point there, why do a lot of consulting firms have lots of propositions? It's so that you can be a Swiss Army knife. So, you know, if I come into your office, Mark, yeah. as a client, I can sell you IT transformation or operating model. Do you ever find that's a, a challenge that the firms you've worked with have, have kind of had to overcome that? You know, I, I am going to put my colors to or pin my colors to a mast. Because I think that almost feels like the last bit of your process, but also the biggest blocker potentially. Yeah, so the, the key distinction here, I think, is the difference between proactive and reactive. So I would argue that you pin your, uh, your colors to the mast on a certain proposition or two or three propositions in two or three sectors, you know, not loads of sectors and, and loads of propositions. So you go narrow in terms of where you're going to invest your marketing time and energy and building your capability. However, it doesn't mean that you can't be reactive in a scenario and have a set of qualifying criteria that say, well, actually, if this opportunity comes along, it's not bang in our sweet spot, but it is something we have the capability to do. It's not going to take resources away from our core stuff. It's not going to stop us from continuing to grow and scale in the direction we're going in, but it's going to fund other things. It's going, to, it's going to be profitable. Then go ahead and do it, right? So you can be reactive but then don't all of a sudden slap it on your website and go this we're the experts at this now and we're now you know promoting this proposition build it up you know do it two or three times in a reactive way if people keep knocking on the door and asking for that then chances are that maybe there is worth putting some resource behind it and developing a new service line and taking that to market uh, so that, that that's how i think you can balance the desire to want to do lots of different things because people are motivated often by by the variety but also developing and growing something that, that has the potential to scale and ultimately create some value in your business if that's what you're hoping to do. I think that proactive reactive is a great point, Mark, because like you say, it's, it's not excluding it forever. Yeah. It's 
it, it's more about what you are going out with. And then, yes, if, you know, ultimately, if the client thinks, well, Mark, you can help me with this as well. And, and the criteria you just said are met, why wouldn't you? You made that point around, we make criteria, you know, in a good consulting way, we have criteria, we tick against them and we see what comes out. With either Blue Sky or some of those businesses you've worked with, has that ever led to a surprising result? And if so, kind of how did the team or how did you kind of come to terms with that? Well, yes, a few times. And particularly by doing the back analysis. So, so one of the exercises we do is we look at the last three years revenue and we look at it by sector and we look at it by proposition. And then you quantify, you know, where are you making your most money? And, and obviously look at it from a revenue and a profit perspective. And sometimes the owners hadn't really clocked onto the fact that there was a really strong theme in that revenue. And where maybe they've been articulating themselves as change management, transformation, now all of a sudden they realize that actually really where their focus has been and where they've got great credentials is digital transformation within the retail and FMCG sector. Or, or you know, and all of a sudden you've, you've got something that has a little bit more teeth. So yeah, we've had a few occasions where, because again, people are just focusing on the next project and, and the next deal, and they maybe haven't done that retrospective analysis. So it's very, very much worth doing. And with Blue Sky, that 26 down to four, yeah. were any of the ones that you lost, did that cause any tensions with yourself, with your sister, with the rest of the leadership team? And I asked that more a bit to what we've just touched on to help if someone here is thinking, well, I want to do that, but I don't want it to be my service that we lose. Did you have any tensions in those conversations? And I guess, how did you overcome them? Was it back to the spreadsheet or, or was there something else that helped with that? There were certainly people that were wedded to certain propositions. And that's where the proactive play came in to say, look, we don't think this is central to our future growth. So therefore, we're not going to go out and promote it. But, you know, if clients start asking for it or continue to ask for it and work comes in, then we'll do the work and you can continue to do the work. But yeah, it, I, we, I don't remember any major tensions. I, I think we had a slightly different topic. We had more tensions around when we looked to restructure the business away from service lines to sectors. That was more challenging. So it's kind of related. Consultancies, as we both know, usually go vertical or horizontal in terms of go-to-market, won't yeah. they? And actually, just because you mentioned it there, what was that shift like? Because that is a big shift from going, well, I do change management across the board to we're just working in FMCG. Obviously, it wasn't your example, but yeah, yeah. bring that to life because I'd love to know about that. Well, that was, that was quite painful. And um, <laughs> I don't know if she's listening, but one of my senior directors was very passionate about customer service transformation, which was a core, core part of what we did. And she wasn't really that interested in sales transformation or cultural transformation, which were the other two kind of lead propositions. And the fourth was uh, executive coaching. So yeah, the conversation went along the lines of this is the this is the structure that we are moving towards because we believe it's right for our clients and right for our future growth. And essentially, if you want to be a senior player in the business, then you need to embrace other propositions and become a practice leader. And initially it was kicking and screaming, I think it's fair to say. But she did did embrace it after after some time, and that 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 needed she needed to get immersed in those other propositions to become as passionate as she was about the customer service transformation. But you know, she was successful. She went on to become the MD after I left. So it, it obviously worked out for her and for the business. I, the answer maybe what you just described. Why did you make that move? Why did you go from you know horizontals to verticals? So as we grew, we were finding it more and more difficult to 
cross-sell uh, within our clients because obviously as partners we weren't necessarily involved in our clients anymore as much and uh, so then you had a scenario where we could be working for British Gas as as a major client and of course they could buy customer trans customer service transformation sales transformation and leadership and cultural transformation everything right they don't want to talk to four different service line leads they want to talk to one primary practice lead who understands their sector and ideally understands those propositions. So that was the primary reason why was was client-driven. The other benefit was internal ownership. So we could then break our business into smaller profit and loss accounts so that a practice leader could own the profit and loss account for the financial services practice, for example, and be responsible for growing existing accounts and winning new revenue and building the capability and the intellectual property and the thought leadership associated with the financial services team and driving the marketing campaign. So there was, yeah, it, it provided great clarity. And I, and I thank Paul Collins for that, who was my, was my mentor at the time, who we, we had many conversations and I resisted for many, many years to make that move. Because once, in, once you're wedded to service line you know, capability and that's how you've structured your business, it is, it is tough to make the move. But I have to say that was, that was one of the transformational decisions that we made, made a real difference. Help me understand. So you mentioned you chose to be vertically aligned for P&L ownership. And this may be a naive question or not, is why could you not do that horizontally aligned? Why could you not have a, I understand what you mean around having four partners, not one, but why couldn't I have the P&L for sales transformation? Why did I have to have the P&L for financial services? Technically, you could. So let's not forget that. So the primary reason we did it was from a client perspective. The secondary reason was around P&L ownership. So if someone was owning a, a sales transformation profit and loss, they are going to be working in the same clients as the people running the customer service transformation, the leadership transformation, potentially lots of crossover, right? So the question is then who owns the client? Whose responsibility is it to grow the account overall versus grow just the sales transformation aspect of it. So that it gets messy, it gets really messy. And because ultimately a lot of functions had both sales and service functions within it, and of course they had leaders within there. So yeah, it's, it, it was a lot more straightforward. That was what I thought the answer might be. And, and to your point, it kind of, I imagine, saves lots of internal politicking over who owns the revenue to your point is it customer service is it sales you know it's much easier in that way to have client ownership help me as well because this will be relevant for our listeners how big were you when you made that shift i would say we're probably around the four to five million okay and that's useful as well because when people start to hear verticals horizontals you think to like the you know you mentioned pwc the accentures where you're like these are big, big firms. Obviously, you made that shift at that sort of 5 million mark. And we, I do want to come back to your point around there's firms who are at 10, 15 who don't know their proposition. You were obviously very deliberate about it. Why was that the time to do it? You know, Why was Paul telling you to do it at that point? Was it specifically to then or was it because of when you had met Paul and that relationship you had built there? I think it was also part of um, lifting me out of the business in the sense that so that I could focus on working on the business rather than in it. That was a big part of it. And so in order to be able to delegate responsibility more clearly and have that level of ownership, and also to scale the sort of sector teams, that, yeah, those were, those were the primary reasons. That were, it was probably overdue. You know, ideally, we would have probably started like that. 
so yeah and as I say I deferred it for several years because I knew it was going to be painful so we probably should have done it sooner well then I think that point around the on your business not in your business and I, I know it's something you talked about at the summit I guess answer this whichever way is most helpful is like that how did you do that or how do you advise people to do that because that does seem in our industry a challenge where if you are the product and you have started your business, you are also the quality, it can sometimes be quite hard to step back in that way. It's not, you know, it's not a production line like the KFCs you ran. So I was very bad at it originally. And, and if I'm honest, I didn't really know what it looked like because in a consulting business, value comes from selling work and delivering work and, and having clients say you're wonderful, right? So, so that's where you, you know you're adding value. In terms of being able to work on the business, I, I mean, you know, there's a there's a well-known phrase, grinding, minding, finding as a, as a sort of structure. You need to get yourself out of the grinding, out of the doing. Uh, you need to get yourself out of the managing and then ultimately get yourself out of the selling. And once you're out of those three primary aspects, you're in a position to start to work on the business. And, and, that, and that might not be 100% of the time, obviously. David Bailey always quotes to me that, uh, I think it's the, one of the Accenture managing partners that still has a 50% billable target or something crazy. How he manages that, I have no idea. It's clearly superhuman. But in a small business, I found it really transformational to be able to have time to take a step back, to be able to coach members of your team, but not be directly responsible for client work and not be directly responsible for driving that pipeline. In the latter years, I would get involved where the deals were sort of a million pound plus. And, but you're still there in support of the team who are selling that piece of work or, or overseeing that piece of work. So yeah, it's a case of getting out of the deliverables, I guess, in short. And to the point in your journey where you did it, and is there a kind of well-trodden at X number of people or X million revenue, you can do that? Or actually, should that be someone's goal from day dot? If someone's listening to this and they're, I don't know, 1 million or 5 million or 10 million, should they already be doing it? Are they too early? Like, How do you yeah, guide people on that? So again, depends on your ambition and what you want. Some people want to be a consultant, want to do the work, and that's what motivates them and that's what enjoys them. If you want to go the quickest path to growth and, and, and value, I mean, one example would, you, you know, I think uh, Tony from Next Wave. I've had it. I was, I was actually about to mention him before we, you did, yeah. Right. So, I mean, he made a decision when he started Next Wave that he would not sell or deliver anything. And that is crystal clear. And as a result, he's built a team around him who can sell and deliver and and has seen phenomenal success in, in a very short period of time. So I think that, you know, that's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and I, I think, yeah, Tony, and he did share that, sort of his version of the journey on the show. And, and to your point, it's worked phenomenally well. You know, they think they've had something like a 200 or 300% compound growth rate, you know, 13th, I think it was 13th fastest growing firm in the UK, which is quite insane. There's an interesting group in, in this, though. To your point of it, depends what you want to do. What if you are someone who wants to, sell and you've got you know you've 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 built a business suddenly you find yourself at that 10 let's say 10 million just for round numbers and you're like well actually i do need to get out of that work how should people do that is it just building a team around you is there kind of structured steps they can take because i guess you've got that to use one of those consulting cliches you're flying the plane you're trying to build it and then you're now trying to train someone else to pilot it actually how can people make that time to even be able to step out to do all of those things so they can step out if that makes sense so for me it really comes down to uh, coaching, essentially. For me, that's the fundamental skill as a leader. And I think I was 
reasonably comfortable in that space as a coach, um, comfortable delegating responsibility, empowering people, letting them take risks, letting them make mistakes, but also being there to support them and help them prep. I mean, we used to, so in the days where I was trying to transition work to, to my senior team, I would be there with, you know, Lindsay, for example, before a sales meeting, we'd be having a conversation before the sales meeting, going through all the prep, making sure she's fully ready to go. And then she'd go and do the meeting and then she'd come back and tell me all how it went. And then we'd, we'd analyze it and she'd, we'd get a full 360 conversation. And we'd do that repeatedly such that, you know, we were honing that skill. And then, you know, after a certain amount of time, we're in a place where I don't need to have that conversation anymore because she's coming fully prepped. She knows exactly what she's doing and, and it's working. And, and similarly for those that are running you know, major clients presenting back diagnostic findings, all of the key meetings. For me, it's all about coaching. And uh, I'm not sure how else you get there. I'm sure, I'm sure other people have got their other ways, but for me, that's what it's all about. Well, and, and I think that example is a really good one as well to, you know, that is a process you've described. The first meeting you sent Lindsay off to, what did that look like in terms of, you know, was that just more coaching ahead of it? I guess what I'm trying to get to is, at some point in there, you've got to do the first one. And with the first one comes risk. You know, take Lindsay's off to a sales meeting. If she doesn't do that as well as you could, she might lose you the business. You know, I'm, I'm painting a very dour picture, but how did you or how do you get people comfortable with that first turn? Because as soon as you go once, you can keep going. Yeah, it's, it's a progressive thing. So we would go to meetings together and initially I would run the meeting and, and she would take notes and then you, you move bit by bit, then she would open the meeting and maybe ask the questions and I would maybe do the presentation or the other way around. And so you'd hand over bits of the, the meeting and we'd get to a point where she would do the entire meeting and I would hardly say anything in the room, but I would be there so that if anything came up that she wasn't sure about or a client asked a, a tricky question that, you know, then I was there in support. So actually when she went off to do it on her own, she felt pretty comfortable because she'd led it end to end. I kind of see one, yeah. do one, coach one yeah, type structure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it will probably more than one of each, but, <laughs> you know, because, you know, they're all different, aren't they? And they're complex. And we did have high standards. We did want to convert a high proportion of those opportunities. And so, yeah, preparation was the key for me and progression. But, you know, she's also a very talented lady. That's what helps. And the other side, just because you mentioned it was a client conversation, an example, just thinking about things others might ask, you know, internally that makes sense, kind of the coaching, the building up someone's capability. As you were taking that step away, did you have to do anything specifically with clients to get them comfortable? Because again, if I'm thinking about boutique consulting founders and owners I know, there is that natural tension. If you have always been the face they've seen, they may always want your face. Actually, did you have to take any steps to kind of go, well, no, actually, Lindsay's just as good. You're, you're in safe hands. Yeah, 100%. And, and you, you need to create opportunities for your team to look good and opportunities for them to educate the client and for the client to learn from your team, not from you. And, you know, you may have come up with the idea. You may have done the thinking, but you feed the thinking and the idea to your, your team member and they get to look good and they get to, to build that level of rapport. And you're able to then walk out of the meeting and, you know, have a little chat with the client saying, blimey, yeah, she's good, isn't she? Yeah. Right, great. Yeah, well, look, you don't need me anymore. <laughs> Clearly, I'm, you know, so again, it, it, it's a progressive thing. And yeah, if you're determined to do it, and, and you need to put your ego to one side because, and avoid, you know, the need to look good in front of the clients and, and focus on, on uh, your team looking good. And, and 
starting the conversation in that way as well is really important. So you're setting the expectation, you know, in new, in new engagements is easy. So you set the expectation in terms of what your role is as managing director, you will be there in the background, you'll be, you know, available as an escalation point should that be necessary, but you're not expecting it to be the case because your team are more than capable. I love that phrasing, Mark, and, and that kind of giving your team that opportunity to shine. And even if you're involved in the background, like you say, it's it's what the client sees that matters, isn't it? It's uh, I'm sure I wouldn't want to see what was going on in the back of a KFC, but you like what comes out in the bucket, or if that is the meals you enjoy. But how do you make sure you get the right people? Again, to the scales you've talked about, well, you, you can take that step back, you've put your verticals in. Actually, what are those common challenges that you find hold consultancy back from a people perspective? Because in some ways, consulting is really easy. Like You just copy the big four. I'm being really simplistic. But actually, people are human, their own drivers, motivators, etc. Kind of what are some of those either challenges you had or the challenges you've seen time and again that kind of hold consultancies back? So many. Um, so we've probably got a whole podcast on people. It, if yeah, you want it. And do you know what? I, I almost feel... So I, I have a few rules in my head in terms of things I look for. And I would say recruitment is not necessarily my forte, let's say, which is, uh, fortunately, it was, it was Miranda's forte. And, and Miranda took care of it when we were at Blue Sky and did a very good job. The things that were important to me were, when I needed people that were prepared to have a conversation and take feedback and be receptive and not just receptive, but proactive about wanting that coaching. because. They could come in with all sorts of wonderful experience, but we found time and time again that people still had an awful lot to learn. And so if they're receptive and they learn quickly, then you can usually get over most things. And so it was how you test that. And we used to test it through, obviously you put them through an assessment process and then we would find an opportunity to give them some constructive feedback. And then we would observe how they reacted to that constructive feedback. Because we really wanted to sort of, you know, put them under a bit of pressure, make them feel uncomfortable, frankly, and see how they handled it. Because uh, because I love this. Can you bring that to life? What did that, it was that you gave them a presentation and then the feedback was actually this bit wasn't great. Like, what Absolutely. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. And with a straight face, you know, thank you very much for the presentation. I've got to be honest you lost me a little bit at this point. I really did not know what you were trying to say, where you were going with it. And you're going to have to help me out because I was, you know, or something, you know, direct. And, you know, would you really finish a meeting like that? You know, just, just, just to, to challenge them around and to see how they respond and whether they get emotional and how they handle it. Because let's be honest, you know, client situations can be challenging and uh, you can be on tight deadlines. You can be working with a team late into the night. And uh, you need people that can handle it. And just because you gave those two examples there, were there sort of stock feedbacks you always gave or were they always context no, contextual no, no. to the... We, we would, they would, they would, look, at the end of the day, you, you, the test is going to be hard enough that people aren't going to do it perfectly. So there was always an opportunity to be able to say, yeah, there were a few things I think that you could have improved. Well, I would always ask them first, what could you have done better? What could you have done differently to see if they had the awareness of where they could have done better? So that was the, was the first test. And then if they didn't, then obviously we'd point it out and see how they reacted. And I'm making a note, Mark, because that, that's going straight in our own recruitment process. I, I guess, and you might just say these weren't the people who passed. How did you f strike that balance between to your point, testing that direct feedback versus, I guess 
causing someone just to think they'd failed the interview and collapsed. Because an interview is quite, you know, pressure, to your point, high pressure. In some ways, it's more pressured than a client meeting because client meetings are never usually do or die, whereas an interview is. Were there any learnings in that respect? Or was your view that actually, if you crumble, well, you're going to crumble in a client meeting, so you're not right for here? Yeah, that that was pretty much it. I mean, look, we weren't brutal. It was always delivered in a nice way, but in a clear and direct way. And, uh, so, we, you know, we're not, you know, we're not looking to be mean, but equally, yeah, just, just looking to be. Wasn't drill sergeant and, and, from the and, army. Yeah. And, and, and to some degree, I always wanted to create a culture where people could speak as directly to me as I could to them. I, and I, I certainly, I know that I, I had that at Blue Sky. Um, I think for a large part, there were certainly phases maybe where it wasn't the case. And in my team right now at the Growth Network, I mean, the amount of feedback they give me and the, uh, the, the, amount, the amount that I, I, they seem to take the piss out of me. I'm allowed to say that, but um, I, I think they feel fairly comfortable about uh, pointing out when I get things wrong. So I think that's great. Well, and because you've openly shared it there, and I think it's a really interesting piece for our listeners as well. You touched on, you had that balance sometimes and, and sometimes you either lost it or you thought you needed to get back to it. Just so I was that, you didn't feel you could talk to the team or the team didn't feel they could talk to you. I mean, that is a whole other story that I'm not sure Fine. we want to go into. We did go into it in quite a bit of detail, actually, when I did the podcast with Daniel Priestley. Uh, there was another leader in the business. We were partners, and uh, let's just say we weren't culturally aligned, and there was a little bit of a divide between his team and, and my team. And that was the period where, yeah, things didn't go quite so well. Fine. Well, we, we won't unpack that here. If people want to listen, they can listen on, on Daniel's podcast. You know, to your test there of you want someone who can handle direct feedback and give direct feedback to you. Obviously, there is a, a kind of spectrum. You know, you mentioned the cultural values as well. So someone needs to be able to give direct, if it's a Venn diagram, they need to be able to give direct feedback and have that cultural alignment. What is in your recruitment process that test to make sure that someone isn't just a dick? Because dicks can be very direct, can, you know, can take feedback on but can be very rude back. What's that almost counterbalance for you? Maybe how have you applied it in the consultancy growth network to make sure that your team have that, you know, fun energy that I know they all do, but are also direct? Because that's quite an unusual combination. So we used to kind of ensure that one of the junior members of the team would go and greet the candidate and take them to the the meeting room where the interview was going to take place. And then they would feed back on their experience of that person and the degree to which they bothered to build a rapport you know, knowing that you know, this isn't the person that's going to be interviewing me, they don't really matter if, if, that, if that's their attitude or or actually they really engage and they start asking questions, how long have you been here and, you know, what's it like and all this kind of stuff. So that was one of the key things that, because again, we and, and I, I learned this actually from one of Richard Branson's sort of uh, things that he looked for was uh, people that were others orientated. So, and I think that, again, that matters because in consultancies, you have to work as a team to be effective both with the client and with your internal team. So yeah, to, to make sure they weren't a dick. We had a little other little tests around that sort of thing. And we would take people out socially as well before we hired them, if you know, at the final stage. And then they would get to mingle with over a beer and 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 usually people lo- loosen up a little a little bit then and you get to know hopefully the real person, uh, not just the the act. It's tough though, isn't it? Let's be honest. It is tough when you're recruiting to to make sure you're getting behind the skin of um, and finding out who you're really hiring. So, and that's why I dig into it because I think you know if I I think of people I know in the industry, recruiting is always that challenge, and particularly in consulting, where part of the role is being able to present 
a face, if you like. You know, how you behave with clients is always different based on them. And actually, that can make it quite hard to see through what is front versus what is is real. And I, I love your example of the feedback is is definitely what I'm going to use for myself. But your one around actually how people speak to juniors, how they you know act with a beer, like it's all those little things. It's um, James O'Sullivan from Project One. He's came on the show and he kind of said any bad thing you see multiply by a thousand, and that's in real life. And you know that I think is a really good bit of advice as you're interviewing people. Sorry, were you gonna? Well, I was just gonna say I, I think the other thing uh, you know. I recognize that it's not my forte, right? So I think it's important to have good people around you that are good at it. And at Blue Sky, Miranda was great at it. Now I'm lucky enough to to be in partnership with Caroline Boston at New Minds and Caroline and her team are excellent at it. So we can we can lean on on her and her team, you know, when we're hiring for the growth network. So yeah, I, I, I'm a big advocate of, of finding people who are you know what they're doing in that regard. <laughs> no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like you say, know your skills and yeah. build the team around that. And actually, how do you take stock of the team you have versus the team you may need at a certain size? Because again, you know, you you might start a business with someone or, you know, you might hire someone who's brilliant when you're a five person, but when you're a 50 person, they they aren't there. And that, I imagine, is the hardest. You know, it's easy to lose underperformers. It's really hard if you've got someone who was a great performer and they're just, you know, they were great when you were the third division, but now you're the premiership, they're not cutting it. Again, how, how have you seen or how do you advise people to kind of take stock and, and manage that? I think that is really tough. And like you say, people who are there at the beginning for a certain set of reasons and either, yeah, they just don't fit or they, they can't perform in the new context. And typically it, it comes as you start to need to put in more process and more accountability, more measurement, more reporting, more visibility. Yeah, we certainly had that. And yeah, I think one of, and uh, someone who I would consider to be a very good friend, you know, was 13 years in the business and started on the same day as me a year into the business. And, you know, as the years went by, it, it just wasn't working for him, you know? And it was, yeah, it was very difficult, but I'm pleased to say that you know he and one of my team, who was uh, you know his his boss at the time, had a great conversation, and and he became an associate and a contractor to to the business, and went on to add value and and continue to have a career with us, but just in a different in a different shape. I was worried about that at the time as to how that would work out, and I think it worked out really well. So it can be done, but it, it's I think it's very personal and uh, well, yeah, very individual dependent. Yeah. And, and like I said, you know, your example there showed when it's handled well, it can work very well. Is this one of those things that just becomes obvious to people? Or is it something that you as the leader of a business should always be looking for? You know, do you find in those businesses you've worked with, like, they know who who it is who's just not keeping pace? Or is actually that sometimes one of the things that's actually holding their whole business back, they just haven't identified? Well, I think of one one client that I've been an advisor to for several years now, had someone working for them. Uh, who wasn't performing and I think what got in the way of that as an example was was really just a, a personal relationship and the owner's a really nice guy and was quite forgiving you know and of course you know as as a sort of in in, in a, like a non-exec role I'm able to to play bad cop uh, occasionally and say well you know how long are you going to let this person not deliver for they're costing you money. They're not making you any money. And the trouble with that, it's not just the money side of it, but it's the impact that it has on the other, the rest of the team. Inevitably, if there's one person not pulling their weight, it's just not fair on the rest of the team. And and it also, so, so therefore it undermines you as a leader and gets in the way of any ambition that you can have to create something that's really quite special and making a real difference. So 
So yeah, it's, I think it's very common. It's very common. And typically underperformance is fairly easy to see, you know, in, in a consulting business, you're pretty well exposed, you know, if you're responsible for bringing work in and you're not, if you're responsible for managing clients and they're not happy, then, you know, we, know, we all know about it. One topic I said I would bring us back to, Mark, and I mentioned obviously Paul at the, the Consultancy Growth Network's annual summit. He made the point around not building a business as a partnership, so an LLP. Obviously, with that desire to sell a number of members, a number of business I know, they're set up as limited companies. Paul Collins obviously made the point that that's the best way to do it. I tease that because I know obviously with Blue Sky, you were a partnership. And when we spoke ahead of this, you mentioned that actually being a partnership was a real benefit in your story. So I'd love to maybe open sort of this topic up with with why was it a benefit to you? And actually, if you're giving advice to either members or firms you work with, kind of what should they consider? Because changing is hard and you should probably start in one way or t'other. Why did you find partnerships so beneficial to your business? So the the primary reason was, it's just a really practical one, one, which is flexibility. So, and that's flexibility around bringing partners in and, and, and partners leaving. So uh, during the course of our 17 year journey at Blue Sky, we had uh, seven partners, I think overall. The start, there was predominantly the three of us, um, Elka, Liz and myself, for pretty much the first 10 years. And then for the next seven years, we had several people come and go. And at the end, it was just myself and, uh, and Elka. Now, if we'd have been a limited company, bringing on those, those partners um, and exiting them yeah, uh, would have created tax events uh, on each occasion. Uh, they would have had to buy in or we'd have had to put thresholds in place. We'd have had to get legal advice, you know, adaptive shareholders agreements, deal with company's house, all of that uh, business administration stuff that has no value to your business and co- you know, takes time and money. Whereas we were able to just make a decision to say, ah, you, so, you know, you want to go off and or go part-time or, or you want to take a maternity leave or you want to reduce your, your responsibilities, right? Well, we can reduce your, your shareholding, we can reduce your salary, we can do whatever we want, frankly, from whatever date that we want uh, and there are no tax implications. So th- that was the primary area of flexibility. The downside of being a partnership is you get, if, you, if your business makes a profit, Regardless of whether you take the money out, you pay dividend income tax on that, right? So, or income tax, I should say, on that money. And as you grow, clearly your business needs more working capital. So you need to leave money in, but you still have to pay tax on the money that you're leaving in. So that's a downside of being a partnership. Whereas in a limited company, obviously you pay your corporation tax, but you only pay dividend income tax if you distribute the funds. So Again, as is often the case with these questions, the, the answer is it depends on, on your ambition and your direction. So if, for example, like you know, one of our growth experts who kind of had a, was on a path to grow and sell and reinvested all the way along, didn't really distribute any money along that sort of 10-year journey, and at the end had the big sale and made, made a big chunk of money, it made sense to be a limited company. Otherwise, you'd have been really struggling to pay all that tax as a partner, right? Whereas if you've got um, people coming and going within the partnership and you can afford to cover that, that tax, then the increased flexibility for me is a, is a, is a massive bonus. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and well, I guess, I guess there's an, an interesting part to obviously your journey. You, you were a partnership which had the flexibility, but you were also growing quickly and grew to a size where you probably needed some working capital. 
how did you square that circle? Because to your point, if you're paying income tax, which is much larger than corporation tax, and and you know when you were running Blue Sky, would have been much much larger before they changed it. Yeah, how did you have that working capital? We just paid ourselves less. Yeah, and we had to leave the money in to fund the working capital, but we did it knowing that we were funding a growing business, and uh, so yeah, th- th- therefore we felt comfortable doing it. But yeah, there were certainly times where we could have all been grateful to take more money out of the business and cover the school fees, et cetera. But yeah, the business needed. But what it also did was drive us to, um, you know, bring in some best practice around invoice policies and cash flow management and and really making sure that we we're getting paid as early as possible, as much as upfront as possible to fund the business so that we weren't having to fund the working capital as much ourselves. When you say that, it makes a lot of sense, Mark. And I, I guess... Well, what do you see in the the members? Because I, I obviously know some of the firm names. I don't know whether they have LTD or LLP at the end. What is the split? Is it more eighty twenty limited companies? I mean that that is the default, I think, for the vast majority of people. And I, I still think limited liability partnerships are still a minority. And you know, where people think about liability, then they think about okay, I ought to have a limited company. I just think that's because the easy thing. And I think a lot of consultants, when they start their business, probably don't even think about running it as a partnership. Because they just, they just, you know, will go to the natural default of setting up a limited company. And this might not have actually happened, but I'm thinking of questions that might challenge some of that sort of the benefits of flexibility. Because, you you know, the way you explained it, you can bring people in and out. I guess, does some of that ease, did that ease ever create tension where, I don't know, someone's like, well, I deserve to be a partner, so make me a partner. Whereas in a limited company you shouldn't, but you could hide behind the complexity and the, you know, the, the definitiveness. I, I don't know, because obviously I've not run one, but I, was that ever a tension or the other way? You know, you vote a partner out because it can be done easier. Did that ever create tension where someone's like, well, I, I bloody want to stay here and challenges that follow? Well, I don't think it necessarily makes those decisions easier or more difficult. The decisions themselves, it's the execution of those decisions that, that, that's easier. So, you know, if we have a falling out, it's going to be awkward, you know, whether, frankly, whether we're a partnership or a limited company. But once we've come to an agreement, we can make it happen nice and easily. I might move us on because you, you mentioned one point there that I had got in my notes to talk to you about and it had slipped my mind. So you have reminded me that point about profitably and scale is something all consultancies want and to the old sort of cliche you know was it revenues vanity profit sanity consultancies we all talk in revenue numbers you know we talk about being a 10 million or 20 we, we rarely talk in profit numbers that's convenient isn't it? yeah <laughs> it, it is but, it, but i think that's also interesting because you know something that struck me at the summit as well was paul collins said i think you know we should be making net profit so after everything about 20 percent and i I got the sense in the room, there was a mixed reaction to how realistic some people felt that was for their businesses. And again, I'd be really interested in whether this is advice from yourself and the growth experts to members or, or from your advisory businesses. Kind of actually, why don't consultancies make profit and where they don't, how can they turn that around? That I'm glad you went back to this topic, actually, because I think it's really, A, it's really important and B, it's really interesting. I think the, and we, we went on a journey with profit in the sense that I remember we had two years in a row where we were earning five or 8% profit. Oh, well, actually, no, 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 it was less than that. In fact, the numbers were £30,000 profit one year and sort of fifty or £80,000 profit the, the next. And was that before or after partners take? Because a partnership obviously has uh, a... That, that, was, that was after partners take. 
but it was, you know, measly. We'd all worked really, really hard and that was not enough. And it, we wouldn't have done any distributions at that level because it would have needed to go into fund working capital, as we were talking about. But the following year, we, we, we made £800,000 profit. And I think that there's a lot to unpack there, right? So let me just sort of break it down. I think that people don't focus enough on profit, number one. They don't benchmark themselves, their pricing externally enough, and they don't drive initiatives in their business to drive profit specifically enough. And fundamentally, part of our problem was we were targeting a 40% gross margin. And then we were landing at maybe 36, 37, 38%. And as a result, we're making a few percentage points on the EBITDA number. The light bulb moment for me was when I hired someone from an organization that was doing similar types of work to us and targeting and achieving a 70% gross margin. And we were around 37, 38. And that was the trigger. And, and, and from there, we then went on a journey to figure out, okay, how do we get from here to there? And a big part of that is something we've, we've already covered a, a fair bit, which is value proposition. A big part of that is pricing, being bold, ideally selling on value, and therefore moving away from day rates, and having a profit matrix for every single deal that you do. So you know exactly what gross margin you're going to make on every deal, based on obviously a set of assumptions. And the more you invest in your... Um, methodology, your intellectual property, your thought leadership, and the impact that you have, and the more that you measure the impact that you have, the more value you're creating your clients, therefore, the more you can charge. And the more you charge, the more profit you make, simple. And so if you've got some really strong initiatives around increasing your differentiation, improving your value proposition, and driving your, your pricing and your value, that's going to really help. And then you've got the discipline around uh, measuring the costs of delivery. So what we did is we documented every single cost associated with running a big transformation program. And that put us in a really powerful position to have an effective conversation with our clients when they were trying to negotiate on price. Because we were essentially able to say, well, you know, these are all the things that you get. If you don't want the thing, those things, of course, we can take them out and, and we can reduce the price accordingly. But that didn't impact the gross margin, right? Because, you know, we were then not delivering that service. You had other aspects like enthusiastic team members, over-servicing clients, working long hours. Oh, but they just asked me to do this little bit extra. And I just, yeah, it's only a small bit. It's part of, you know, before you know it, they're working for free. And so educating the team, getting them on board with the fact that they were valuable. Their time was valuable. In fact, that's all we had to sell was their time. Therefore, that's what we should do. And, and yeah, we went from that 40% to 65%. It took us several years to get there. And we went from net margin sort of 3 to 5% to 27% net margin. So, yeah. I mean, the obvious question, you mentioned that 30 to 60% gross margin. Now, some people are probably listening to this thinking, well, does that just mean I need to you know, dump some juniors in, squeeze them? To your point of the people of product, actually is the answer just sweating your people and i i say it provocatively because i don't think it is but i'm interested how you made because that wasn't a couple of percentage points you didn't just shave you know, or don't do a bit of free work so we get two percent what were those kind of key things that let you in effect double net sorry double gross margin and if it wasn't just squeezing people what was it so you've got to i mean you know over the time frame our our average day rate went from 600 pound a day to 
up to two and a half thousand pound a day. So um, we're talking 10 years ago now. So that was a fairly, fairly healthy day rate back then. So the key thing is you've got to get your people to believe in the value of what they're doing and to feel comfortable having conversations at higher day rates or higher fixed price rates or however you're, you know, whether you're selling on value or selling fixed price deals. But essentially you've got to just charge more. And that by, by charging more, it enables you to pay your people better, to expect less of them, you know, they don't have to be 95% utilized. Now they can be 80% or 75% utilized and they can contribute to other aspects of the business. So we would build a matrix for every program. And yes, your more junior people would be higher utilized than your more senior people. And you'd have a you know, cascade of different rates. And, and maybe you don't make as much money on the really senior people because their utilization is lower. But fundamentally, if that gross margin is coming out at 65% for that program, then you are where you need to be. And we would put in a, we put in something called um, a lock profit process. So the person selling the work, the partner or the, the director selling the work would have to agree with the director who is going to fundamentally deliver that work and oversee it that they could deliver it for the amount of days that were factored into that program and that profit then would be locked and then that would link into their into their targets and if they wanted to move outside of a parameter around their gross margin target then they'd need my approval so yeah a tangible set of steps to drive value drive the prices up but not feel like you're ripping clients off but actually you know we were getting we had clients that were getting 1500% return on their investment literally well, you shouldn't be shy of, of charging them, you know, a, a decent rate at that you know, level. I mean, we did, we did one risk and reward deal with Carphone Warehouse many years ago. And uh, the day rate ended up being £5,000 a day. Um, but they made, um, literally, I mean, that is the example, they made 1,500% ROI on that. They made nine and a half million on that, on that project of net contribution to the business. So do I, do I worry about charging them 470 or what it was? No, I don't. Uh, even though we made five grand a day, and that was an eighty percent plus gross margin. Well, I think it's a really interesting topic around that because the phrase is quite simple: that value-based pricing. How did you, or how do you advise people to bring that to life? Because you know, to take what you mentioned, like you benchmark against competitors, or oh, I hear so and so charges this. So, well, like you could very quickly get to a world where, well, I don't want to be the one, you know, the one that's charging double day rates. Is it having to do risk and reward? Is what is it that lets people? price on value and how do you have that conversation with a client so that it is a win-win and it's not you just exclude like ruling yourself out because you're too expensive in kind of inverted commas the key is to get under the skin of what it's worth to the client so whatever change it is that you're going to make in partnership with them or in terms of the transformation program that you're going to run and you're going to deliver what is that worth to their organization and quite often they don't know the answer to that. And you have to work with them collaboratively to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, it's really hard to sell on value, right? But if you can, then that's your, that's your, that's your open door. I mean, this, funny enough, this is uh, a topic. So we're running an event as part of the Growth Network on the 25th of January. And it is all about value pricing, value selling, how to have those conversations, how to use the sort of value definition to to avoid clients kicking the can down the road. There's a lot of projects getting deferred at the moment. And by bringing value to the fore and going, okay, your opportunity cost, your cost of not doing this is X million, hopefully, it makes it much harder for them to delay the project. 
so yeah, I think there's there's lots that can be done, and I think I think fear holds people back to some extent because they don't want to lose the deal. They worry about being too expensive, and particularly the teams can often not have that belief and feel that they're worth two grand a day or three grand a day or whatever the number is. You know, little old me from Bridgen being sold out at two and a half grand a day. You know, it just feels doesn't feel right, does it? So you need to address that. You know, mindsets the you know, really important, really important aspect. How did you do that? Because that is, you know, I've heard plenty of consultants say that people come out the big four where they're charged out at three grand, bloody hell, that never is what I should be worth. And instantly they'll drop the day rate to a grand or what you were talking about, 600 quid. I've seen consultancies who go out at that level. How did you get your team to believe they really are worth it? Because if they don't believe, nothing else is going to work from that. By two things. A, by demonstrating the value that we created for clients and quantifying that as part of our case studies and sharing that across the teams, but also uh, getting them to understand the economics of running a consulting business. Because quite often they'll just think of their own salary as the cost. When of course it's not, you know, it's the whole marketing team and the product development team. And, you know, it's the whole organization and the business, you know, we, we were in business to, to make a return, you know, and so. I think educating them around both those aspects and the fact that it's not just about their salary and it's about, it's not just about them turning up and, and putting in an eight or 10 hour shift. It's all of the intellectual property and knowledge that's been accumulated in the last 17 years that is enabling them to make the difference that they're making in a short space of time. What should someone be doing today? Because to your point, we're in a, a inverted commas, tough market, you know, the economy's slower. I'm sure everyone listening would love to go from 30 to 60% gross. Is it just the things you've said? Is there an order they should do? Is there a kind of start here and then go to here? What, what would be the steps that someone should follow? Well, probably the, fir the first step would be to start to go back over your recent projects and analyze what gross margin you've achieved and build into your reporting a, a dashboard, a, ra a RAG report, so that you can see all of the projects that you're running and where are they in terms of their profitability against the target? And I would do some pricing benchmarking to understand. And you can do you can do this. It's not. We're funny enough. We we will include as part of the. We do an annual survey called the Bench Press Survey, and we are going to be focusing on pricing this year. Actually, so there will be some data coming out in, in, in the new year. Um, but in the absence of that anecdotally, if you're using associates or contractors, ask them, you know, if they can provide information around that pricing, because it's not e often easy to get hold of people's prices. But usually if you start, you leverage your network, you can usually get a pretty good idea on what other people are charging. And, you know, ask yourself, do you want to be top quartile, second quartile, third quartile? What is your value proposition? Are you, are you looking to undercut the big four and be cheaper? Or are you looking to be similar price and loads more value and, and you know, because you're, you're far better at, you know, sustaining the change and, and transitioning capability, developing capability in the client. So I think the, yeah, so start measuring it, start increasing visibility of it and uh, benchmark yourself and then figure out, you know, what you think that path could look like and what, what the steps could be. And then start testing it with new, new clients initially. Because obviously it's much harder to change pricing and, and deals with existing clients. But yeah, I would test it with some new clients and, and start having a more value-led conversation if you can. You know, if you're able to quantify the value of the work that you do, then start having a more value-led conversation. See where it lands you. Because if you can get a client to tell you that it's going to be worth 10 million a year to make the kind of change you're talking about, then, you know, the question that follows is, you know, what would you pay for that? You know, 
And does a ten to one return sound appropriate? You know, if you if we if we if you invest a million pound and we give you ten million pound back, that sounds like a pretty good deal. In fact, I used to say to people, I'll tell you what I'll do is, would you give me a million pounds for me to give you ten million pound back? And they said, well. Well, yes, and theoretically, yes, but you know, I'm not going to just give you a million pounds. I say, fine. Well, how about we give you the ten million? Will you give us the million then? And they, obviously, they say yes, right? So, you know, but that obviously, you can't do too many projects like that because that's that's pretty that's damaging to cash flow, right? <laughs> it's an interesting one as well around maybe the the areas of consulting, isn't it? Because you might tell me this isn't true or untrue. It's like if you are doing a project in sales where you directly lead to sales. It's, there is quite a linear Absolutely. link. Yep. You know, I remember my consulting days where I worked on an IT systems replatforming that had been going for three years and was going, I think might still be going, but was going for at least three years more. Is it, but to your point, is it more that thought experiment and really uncovering it leads to a client commitment where, again, if someone's listening to thinking, well, Mark, I can't tangibly link pounds to an outcome, or is it about understanding what they can link and talking in that language? Yeah, I mean... I pre- totally appreciate, you know, a sales transformation program is the easiest one to measure the impact you're having. You know, customer service transformation requires a little bit more thought. IT, you know, platform implementation, more thought again. But fundamentally, that business will probably have a business case. You know, why are they implementing it? And what return on investment have they argued that they will get internally? And are they on track to deliver that? Or are they three months, six months behind? And if they're three or six months behind, what's that costing them on a monthly basis that you know they haven't factored in? And so, if they were to engage you and you were to get that back on track, what's it worth? You know, so I, I think people give up too easily in trying to track the impact of what they're doing to a financial number. But that's the child accountant in me, I suppose. And just that's uh, most things can come back to numbers. But again, if you can't, and that and that, and you know, I remember one director. It was an interesting conversation. I was pretty belligerent about return on investment and and we were doing leadership development and we, we, we ran an event and uh, I remember this director from, I think it was O2, really senior guy, far more knowledgeable than me. I turned to him and just said, look, Mark, I said, I don't need, I don't care about the ROI. I know my people need leadership development. I don't care about the ROI. I'm like, great, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But you, you know, he's not the only buyer out there. There are lots of other people that did care about the return on investment and did need to justify it. So obviously we, we like customers like that. Well, and, and I think to you, to your point, and, and if we had time up, we might talk about how a chartered accountant becomes a salesperson because our industry is typically very bad at sales. And I think our industry turns our nose up at accountants as worse. So how you became an accountant to a salesman is probably a, a fascinating conversation for another time. If, if it's a fascinating conversation for now, stop me, it's worth saying. But I, even in that example, I guess if someone says, Mark, I, I just have a really painful thing and I need you to fix it, you the ROI becomes infinite, doesn't it? It's not, uh, there is zero ROI. Right. It's, well, how can you take this pain away? Absolutely. And and we've had a few situations like that, for example, where there was a regulator involved and you know the company was close to getting closed down if they didn't sort out their customer service because they were getting so many complaints um, or getting a massive penalty, which would have you know been a negative ROI. Um, so yeah, we were brought in to turn things around in a very short time frame, and and you know in those situations, money's not really the object. It's it's all about the outcome. And to your point of that process, because and this might be interesting from your own journey, you touched on the fact you went from running a business you're making thirty grand a year to making eight hundred grand a year. Now, firstly, I mean, who wouldn't want that? But there is a really interesting, I guess, kind of you had to have confidence to do that because if you're only making thirty grand. 
if you don't get that next project, you've got a bench where you've you're just you know you've just lost two hundred grand. How did you and the leadership team get yourselves comfortable with this approach? Because again, it's because you've lived it. I'm sure you've got the answer. Like if someone's listening, think I'd love to do that, Mark, but I'm terrified we'll lose the next project. Was it baby steps? You know, you mentioned six hundred became seven became eight. Was it you just were comfortable you might lose a few projects? Like how how did you start that? So the the easiest way to to start that is uh, using associates because then you have a variable cost, and so you don't have a big bench and you, you build your, your bench as you build longer term contracts and you have more and more associates that are out there billable and then you start replacing them with permanent members of the team. So, I mean, it's not as straightforward as that, clearly, because the associate can get embedded within a project and it's hard to take them out. But broadly, and we had, a, you know, 300 contractors that, that we would um, engage at different times with different specialisms and a team of only sort of 40, 45, you know, at the point where we're turning over 10 million pounds. So, um, yeah, that was the that was the primary route I would say to to mitigate the risk. And then on the the, the crude day rate piece, obviously you talked about the value side. I'm sure that was still a journey. Was that just slowly? You know, was it every project you went out, you pitched a higher day rate? Was it more or less methodical than that? How did you go from six hundred to two and a half grand? Because that is quite a jump. I'd, I'd say it was more every few years we would sort of do a revisit, and uh, we, we didn't get into the incremental annual inflationary increase, which which maybe we should have. Um, but it sounds silly, but it just made the day rate number sound a little bit odd, you know. So you go from £1,500 a day to 1623 you know, it, it doesn't really quite ring off the tongue. So <laughs> I would say every few years we do a pricing increase. And I think the when we realized, we won a lot of awards actually for the work that we did. So we won about 30, 31 awards in seven years. So we were clearly doing good work. And then when you find out that you're actually third quartile when it comes to pricing and there are other leadership development providers or operational consulting businesses focusing in the same sales and service arenas as you are, charging double what you're charging, then, you know, it's a bit of a wake-up call. So, so yeah, I'd say periodic review and making the shift with new clients and then slowly but surely the, the overall business starts to, to be on the new pricing. So... Mark, I think we've covered a lot of ground and, and obviously we've talked a lot about kind of your advisory journey, your time with Blue Sky and some of the lessons there. I think, I know I've asked a few times, what would you know, what would your advice be to someone doing this again? And I guess the really interesting thing is you have done this again, haven't you? You've, you've started the, the network and I guess that was your chance to bring all of these lessons in. So we touched on where the network is now. Can you tell me a bit about kind of those early days of the network and how you applied some of those lessons and I guess how you've continued to apply them as you've grown. I think the first thing I did was I went out and got a mentor and I would do that every time. If I was going to set another business up after this one, I would go out and get a mentor. Someone who's been there, done it, bought the t-shirt. So yes, I've built and, and sold um, you know, with my, my team a successful consulting business, but I've never built a subscription model, a community, a network of this kind. So yeah, Peter has been fantastic. So that's number one, I would do that and it's been hugely valuable. The second thing we talked a lot about, you know, recruitment, although not great at recruitment, I feel incredibly privileged to be working with George and, and Luke and Ali. George and Ali been with me pretty much from the beginning. Uh, Luke joined not, not long after and uh, the four of us have a really strong, strong bond and we're really connected and we believe in, in the value that the Growth Network can bring to, to members. And so culturally, that feels really, really good. And, and, and recently, James and Charlotte and, 
and in the future other members of the team hopefully will will continue to to be part of that so people yeah really important mentorship really important and uh, clarity of proposition i guess would be would be the third thing i mean i i don't take any advisory clients anymore that aren't members of the network simply because it's the most effective and efficient way for people to learn about how to grow a consulting business and then they can work alongside a growth advisor or a non-exec um, where they can spend the time specifically on the application and dealing with the unique challenges that they have in their business. So the network can deal with, you know, 80% and then the the growth expert can support that that additional 20%. So yeah, as a model, I think it, it, it works. And, um, you know, I feel as passionately uh, uh, about this this business as I did about, about Blue Sky, uh, as I did about selling chicken and chips, Nick. Well, I'm glad that chicken and chips stayed stayed <laughs> up there, Mark. And and something, and it actually it occurred to me with the journey because I, I I'm referencing a lot the summit, but obviously because it was firstly it was great, but secondly because there was a lot covered in it. But right now there are consulting firms who are having challenges, and there are firms who are succeeding. And I'm really interested something around the consultancy growth networks journey. You know, you made a point at that summit that you launched, and with all of the investment and time, a bit to your proposition piece. Come the start of January, I think it was 2020, you were launching the but you only had six members. And this might be a nice way to test out, firstly, how do you deal when you're against adversity, but also proposition. We talked about right at the start, get a clear proposition, test it, and if it doesn't work, change it. I'm not going to say it didn't work, it's obviously worked, but tell me about that period where you got your proposition, you only had six members. How did you... I guess, keep going with the business or did, you know, what did you do to keep yourself motivated and how did you keep growing? Was it ever a thought of actually, is this the right thing? There's a lot of questions in there, but I'd love you to unpack them. So look, it was nerve wracking, right? We, we ran three big launch events in London, face-to-face events in November, 2019, with a view to kicking off on the 1st of January. And as you say, we, we, we got six whole members. And yeah, we were like, oh, what do we do now? You know, does this, does this fly? Do we forget it? What's the story? And uh, I'll never forget Peter, Peter Chap, who, as I say, my mentor said, said to me, look, Mark, he said, look, if 60 people will buy it, 60 people will buy it. And if 60 people will buy it, then you've got yourself a network, right? So thankfully he'd been there and he traveled that path and grown a 300 strong network. And I believed in him and I, I, I stuck with it. And sure enough, we're now at 140 companies and about 350 people. So he was right, thankfully. What I would say is that the proposition of day one is not the proposition of today. So we have iterated that proposition continuously, certainly for the first three years and pretty much into this this fourth year, adding value-added services, adding things that matter to our members. I mean, the beauty of having four events a year where we're face-to-face with our members, we always run a sort of five or like two or three minute survey, which essentially is saying, how else can we help you? You know, are you interested in this? Would you like us to run an awards program? Would you like us to provide a training academy where you can, you know, source consulting skills training and sales skills training for your teams? Would you like, you know, more survey data? What do you want? How can we help you? You know, so we can do that every quarter. And that's what's driven our proposition development over the last four years. And and now we're probably in a position where we're going to slow that down and focus on execution and improvement as opposed to adding more layers to the proposition. Because it, to some extent, actually, some members will say it's quite overwhelming. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot to take on board and, and a lot to learn. So yeah, so now it's about, okay, how do we, how do we help people 
uh, follow that path and uh, and uh, travel that journey to success. Well, and I, I think it's a great example to bring to life what we talked about with proposition at the start and some of those tensions, you know, where we were talking about, does that mean your proposition's fixed, you know, proactive versus reactive? And actually your point there of ask your clients what they want and and evolve and adapt with them because, you know, to your point, you're launching, we've launched, sorry, the the awards. That might have not been what you thought at the start, but actually if that's what the members want, it's what they value, it's just extending that proposition, isn't it? I guess it's almost making the reactive proactive to try and use the kind of frame you put on earlier. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, th- I you can't emphasize enough how, I mean, our members have steered the development of the business without question. And, you know, various ideas like our, our LinkedIn algorithm hack, um, which really rings off the tongue, you know, is an option for people to get onto our Slack community and, and share posts that they're putting on LinkedIn with other members so that they can, they can comment and, and like on each other's stuff, give each other more exposure and leverage the power of the network. That was a member idea. That wasn't my idea. Really, that is, uh, funnily enough, just before this, I was seeing people posting it as well. It's a very active part of the Slack community. So it's nice to know that came from members. And, and like you say, actually, just that listening sometimes, I guess, comes back to value as well. If you know what people value, it's easier to charge more for the things people want. Whereas if actually the, the thing you're doing is not the most valuable, you, you're never, you're going to hit a ceiling, aren't you? And I think, Mark, to round us off for... Uh, today and and you know you touched on kind of all of the new things coming into the network what is the what does 2024 hold we're end of 2023 recording this for anyone listening who is a member or might be interested in it you know what what can they look at and what can they expect in 2024 so i mean a couple of things i've mentioned we're going to be running our annual survey which is really insightful so uh, look out for that and make sure you complete the survey because if you complete the survey you get a copy of the report and a number of our members use that report in their board meetings uh, to benchmark their businesses and set targets. And so, yeah, really powerful piece of work. So looking forward to that. We're launching an awards program uh, specifically for consultancies. And I should say that you don't need to be a member of the Consultancy Growth Network to take part in the awards. That was an important factor for me. I'm not a judge on the awards. I'm, I'm independent from that. But we have a, a team of credible growth experts that have all built and sold successful consulting firms that will be acting as judges on that awards process. And uh, so, yeah, I encourage people to to enter that. It's a great opportunity to get recognition for your teams and to add to your, your you know, add some credentials to your proposition and and why you're different and to show that you're you're the best in your in your market. So the awards, what else have we got? We're, we'll be developing our training academy we, we already offer sales skills training and um, consulting skills training, and there'll, there'll be some additions coming along to that. And uh, yeah, more more events. I think that we'll, we'll have our, our four face-to-face events, but the, the big one in, in October, which will be the next annual summit, uh, the thinking is that we're going to be focusing on the future of boutique consulting firms. So AI will be quite a big theme for that. Looking at the whole life cycle from marketing through sales, through delivery, and how AI can uh, drive efficiency and effectiveness or not as the case may be uh, so that's going to be fascinating so yeah lots to come in 2024 amazing mark well thank you for that summary and we will also at the end in the show notes put a link to the consultancy growth network website we'll put a link to your linkedin as well so for anyone who's listening they can come straight there and find it and then the last questions and these are wrap-ups i ask all of my guests growth experts don morehouse and augusta negrillo have answered these so mm-hmm. Anyone listening can go and compare your answers. You can compare afterwards. The first one is books. And this is, you've mentioned a few books that have had a really big impact on you. And the question is, what is the book or books that 
have either impacted you or you found yourself giving to others most often? So, okay, the uh, one's just occurred to me as you were talking, which I did ask very politely my whole team to read, which was the one by Colin Price called Beyond Performance. I think it's, if you're running a consulting business, it's got a huge amount of valuable data in it. So I would highly recommend that. On a more personal level, Super Coach by Michael Neal, I recommend a lot. I just gave that to one of my good friends uh, the other week. If you're trying to figure out your direction, uh, it's got some great questions. It's like a handbook type thing. It's almost like a you know coaching, coaching in a book. It's great. I like a lot of the Michael Neal stuff. And then Michael Singer's Untethered Soul is a really good book as well. What about, uh, it's a bit deep, uh, uh, finding inner peace and, and uh, that kind of stuff. Amazing. Three, three recommendations that have never come on the show before as well. I always like new books. And as Christmas is about to come, I, well, I say I'll be reading them. We've got a two-year-old. So I would love to read all of those. I'm going to buy them on my Kindle straight away and see how far I get through them. But they all sound fantastic. So thank you for that. And then the last one, and this could be a recap of some of the things we've talked about. Some of this, I think, will be new because of the, the kind of level we've been talking about in this conversation. But you have three people in front of you. One of them is new to consulting. They're an analyst. You know, you might have, have had, it might have been you at PwC, albeit in the consulting side. One is, I call it manager level, but kind of middle of the grades before partner. And the final one is someone who is approaching partner. The question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? So, yeah, some of this will probably overlap with some of what we've discussed. I think the the one just starting out in their career, the key thing for me would be that they proactively seek feedback. They take the opportunity to shadow more senior people. They take ownership for developing themselves. That would be like top of the list for me. For the manager, I'd probably say, take your management role seriously. You know, there are human beings that, you know, now that you are have some responsibility for and that you can support, shape, develop and grow. So, you know, just being a point of ex escalation because you're a better consultant is not the game. Really think about what you can bring to the table as a manager. What was the third was a partner, one approaching partner. So I think the, the key question I'd be asking myself if I was in their shoes would be, what kind of partner do I want to be? You know, how do I want to be known? How do I want to be remembered? Is there a particular niche that, uh, of expertise that I want to develop and be known for or do I want to build a really strong skill set and you know and be known for great client relationships or figuring out why why should clients buy from you you know what what uh, what are you bringing to the table because as I'm sure many of your other guests have have talked about you know that jump to partner is really about being able to bring in new work and and win new clients so yeah for me that would be about relationship development and understanding the psychology of sales fantastic well and and I Things your book recommendations, I suspect, will help with that, Mark, as well. So thank you for that. And that brings us to the end. I, I normally ask people how they can get in touch, but I've already said that we will put your website and your LinkedIn on the uh, show notes. So that is how people can. But is there any other way? Is there anyone in the team they should contact? Is there anywhere else you'd point them to? No, I think if they, uh, the best spot is the consultancygrowthnetwork.com and uh, myself or, or Luke or George, um, feel free to reach out to. And if, if you want to know about the network or if you want to get in touch with me, then really happy to take calls or, or emails. Amazing, Matt. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming to Bath. All that's left to say is all the best for Christmas. Have a lovely break and excited to see what 2024 has in store for you and the Consultancy Growth Network. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. 
Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's Nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.